This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A relationship is forming between the new administration in Washington and Governor John Hickenlooper's administration here in Colorado. In the last few weeks, the governor had calls with President Trump's budget director, Mick Mulvaney, and his special assistant for infrastructure policy, D.J. Gribben. You'll recall candidate Trump floated the idea of a trillion dollars in new projects nationwide. I asked Governor Hickenlooper what stood out from those conversations. They haven't formulated a plan yet, but they are very ambitious in terms of trying to find ways to support states to build more roads, bridges, water projects. Uh, And this guy, Gribben, has worked for a, a couple of pretty large companies that have built infrastructure. He understands how it's financed. He was very careful to say that these are the opinions of me, not the administration. You know, whether we're uh, going to find ways of public-private partnerships or we're going to find ways to use tax credits. They're looking at a bunch of different ways to try and find capital they can put into infrastructure. Public-private partnerships, a sort of fancy word for what are probably inevitably toll lanes. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Or we, we call them shared-use lanes. Mm. And, and, and Mulvaney would talk in, the, in terms of the budget – more about how this is a preliminary budget, don't get too agitated or locked in. There's a lot of work to be done between now and when the budget's finally approved. Don't get too agitated. Uh, the Trump administration has called for many domestic cuts and a boost in defense spending. Are you agitated about his budget? I think I expressed a little bit of agitation, yes. Some of the things, the uh, EPA, the, the early cuts in the initial budget to the EPA, seemed like a lot of them were going to be to the grant programs. The grant programs are what we use in smaller communities when they're dealing with a a new wastewater treatment system or a drinking water processing plant. That kind of stuff, we usually partner with the EPA. looked like they were going to eliminate all those grants, which would, you know, just make it our hill a little bit steeper to go up. So things like that. We, we were looking at very specific parts of the budget that could have a negative impact on our ability to solve issues here. Is the subtext of what you're saying that you heard from the Trump administration that his initial budget was something of a, a first shot across the bow and not to be taken literally, that this is maybe the first volley of a businessman who's used to negotiating? I think that's probably fair. Okay. He, he, was, he was saying there's a lot of discussion that's going to happen, and the, the administration was open to working with Congress. On marijuana, you are asking the Trump administration not to intervene on legal pot here. Have you gotten any response to a letter that you sent earlier this month, along with three other governors whose states have also legalized recreational marijuana? To my knowledge, we have not gotten a response yet. We wrote the letter to Attorney General Sessions really just extending our hand and saying, let's work on this together. And that we recognize that there's some difficult decisions to be made here and that we are in conflict with federal law. But at the same time, it's in our state constitution, right? I took an oath to uphold that constitution. So I feel I'd have no choice but to continue this path. We're just hopeful that the Attorney General Sessions won't make, you know, what is a difficult job even more difficult. Is it normal or abnormal not to have heard back by this point? Normal. And it takes, normal. Okay. takes a while. They've got, you know, they're going to read the thing and go back through. And I think they're trying to figure out, I mean, just put yourself in their place. They're trying to hire all these people and fill up the, the ranks of the staff, senior staff uh, in the attorney general's office. And at the same time, People like us, like us four governors, are writing them letters saying, hey, we want a response. I, I mean, notice something about the letter you sent with these other governors. Three of you are Democrats. One's an independent in Alaska. 
There are three Republicans with legalized recreational marijuana in their states. Did you try to get the governors of Maine, Nevada, Massachusetts to join in on this? We did talk to them, and they considered it, and I think that they in many ways agree with the sentiments that we expressed. This wasn't for them as high a priority as maybe we thought it was. But do you think it's a partisan question or just a priority question? No, I think it's a priority question. I okay. think that the, in states where your voters have legalized it, pretty much everyone, Republican and Democrat that I've talked to, feels it is their responsibility to, to fulfill the will of the voters. And so do you see this as being at the, the, the mercy of the federal government on this issue, or it sounds like you think, gosh, the state really does have some solid ground to stand on here? No, I think the state has made a lot of progress. And I think if you look around the country... But, but doesn't federal <laughs> law supersede that progress? Well, it, it, ideally, what I'd like to see is some legislation on a national level that allows states in this one issue to define their own path forward. Is that a bill you'd like to see a member of the Colorado delegation sponsor? Any conversations in that regard? Absolutely. And Jared Polis has talked about this and has has a draft of of such a bill. The Democratic congressman from Boulder. Colorado's attorney general, Republican Cynthia Kaufman, has also said she'll defend the state's legal marijuana industry. Are you uh, working with her on this? Yes, of course. Okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Democratic Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. How come you guys always have to say Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper? Why don't you say Governor Hickenlooper? Why, why do you want to inject partisanship into what is really just a, a normal question and answer session? Well, who said it was partisan? I'm merely stating a fact about you. It is a fact. It's a partisan fact. I don't think you can argue that it's not a partisan fact. Okay. I'm just asking a question. Well, to the State House now, we focused a lot on Washington. A leading Republican has taken interest in something that you've wanted for several years now. Uh, his bill would reclassify a fee that hospitals pay. And the effect of this would be having more leeway in how state officials apportion money in the budget. It may also mean the state keeps more money in the future instead of returning it to taxpayers as refunds. For years, Republicans have said they're not interested in even talking about this accounting change. So where did this new effort come from? I, I want to know if you had involvement in its genesis. No, I think that what we're beginning to see for the last two years, we've had to cut the hospital provider fee in order to balance the budget. And that has a double effect because the hospital provider fee, it is almost completely matched by federal funds. So when you cut $200 million out of the hospital provider fee, you're really taking $400 million out of our health care budget for the state. Often for uh, indigent care. It is almost all for indigent care. And a large amount of that care is in rural parts of Colorado. And I think that the rural hospitals and clinics, a number of them are now in danger of, of being forced to close. That would be a difficult just a very difficult for, thing for many legislators to let happen. So do you think this this was the tipping point? That's my interpretation. And this bill would free some of that money as well for transportation and for education. It does have a few trade-offs meant to constrain the growth of government, some things that Democrats have said need to change before they'd vote for it. Any deal-breakers for you in this bill? Well, I think the, the key, there's some discussions about whether where where the new Tabor base would be. Would you reset the base in such a way that we'd sort of be starting all over again? In which case, it really doesn't do anything to help. I mean, it does do something to help our rural health care, but it doesn't really solve the, the most pressing issues. So I think that there's nothing we can't negotiate with. That and the, like they're asking about bonding. 
I'm not against bonding, but there's legitimate questions about what gets bonded and what's the length of time. And, For transportation projects. Yeah, what transportation or capital projects. Did your staff have a hand in writing this legislation? We've certainly been involved and had discussions. I don't think the in- initial legislation that he brought forward was that we helped write that, to my knowledge. Hmm. Did it feel like manna from heaven then when it came out? No, we, we, manna from heaven. Uh, you do have a poetic side after all. Um, I think that there was, uh, we began hearing that some of the rural legislators are concerned about the impacts of not adjusting the hospital provider fee, the impacts that's having on, on rural Colorado. And, you know, Senator Sonnenberg has been one of the real stalwart supporters of the rural economy. He's one of the co-sponsors of the bill, Jerry Sonnenberg. Yeah, and he was, he was, his name came up as someone who might sponsor this. And, and that's when it kind of clicked in my mind, huh, that makes sense. Cause sooner or later, somebody has got to speak up for the farmers and ranchers in this state that are going to they're, they're beginning to lose their health care. You can hear our conversation with Senator Sonnenberg at cprnews.org. Colleges and universities are set to get more money under next year's budget, but state funding for higher ed could end completely in the next couple of years, according to the American Council on Education. And we spoke recently with several higher education leaders about that. The president of Metropolitan State University of Denver, Stephen Jordan, said... He thinks this zero funding from the state is a real possibility. Uh, But he says rather than just gradually, quietly shifting money from higher ed to other programs, there ought to be a really thoughtful approach. You know, I think there really does need to be a significant public policy discussion about this and and make a conscious decision about whether this is our future or not uh, and whether we can in some way ameliorate that, that projection. And I think that really begins in the legislature. Um, with the support of the governor. Do you think that state funding for colleges and universities will dry up completely for stuff? Well, I haven't seen this study, but I look at the last several years, I mean, almost every year, I think with one exception, since I've been governor, we've increased the funding for higher education. Well, but those have been modest increases. And You're I think right. the, the, slope, increases. the slope over time has been. No, no, no. We zero. were cutting, 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 right? For 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. And since then, we've been going back up. So where does it come that suddenly we're going to cut off funding? I, I'm not, I'd have to see his data. So I, I disagree. I don't think mm. that's going to happen. I don't think it should happen. I do think that we have to place a priority. And in the state of Colorado, we are placing a priority on controlling the growth of healthcare spending. You're saying that the growth in that is strangling the budget. Yes. And meaning that there are fewer dollars available to colleges and universities from the state. The United States is spending 18% of our total economy, our GDP, on healthcare, we need to begin learning and figuring out how do we cut those costs and yet still provide quality healthcare to, you know, to everybody. One more priority for you this session was signing a law to make it harder for condo buyers to sue over defects in construction. For the past several years, businesses and politicians in the metro area especially have said this is a major priority to create affordable housing, but it never gets done. The idea is more condo construction would perhaps stabilize the cost of housing. In this year's State of the State, back in January, you promised this is the year. Too many people and not enough units adds up to unaffordable rents and skyrocketing home prices. I've said it before, we need to work on more affordable housing. Now, part of the answer is the construction defects legislation we almost passed last year and we will pass this year. And yet a compromise bill seems 
hard to come by. Lawmakers have killed a few bills on this subject and delayed movement on another recently to let negotiations continue. Just a few weeks left in session. Are you still confident they'll pass something? Did you ever see that movie, The Longest Yard? No. Because last year we moved the ball down the field, almost the entire length of the field. We were so close, I felt empowered to make that that commitment that we were going to get it done because we only had a yard to go. Mm. Well, it turns out it's the longest yard. It's a little bit like whack-a-mole. You get one thing sorted out, and then there are two new problems you hadn't heard about before come up. I still think we're going to get it done. You do? I, I what do. gives you that hope? Is that uh, just natural cause... optimism, or is there something specific? About half natural optimism and half that people are still coming to the table trying to discuss this. If you look at how much construction is taking place in Colorado right now, we need to build more condos. And I'm not A lot sure of it is happening in the apartment space. Yeah, it's all, almost all apartments. And, and long term, these young people that have, you know, have started businesses here, they're growing their industry – eventually they're going to want to own, own a place of their own. I'll say this goes back to a 2007 law that passed here, which made it easier for homeowners to sue. And people like yourself believe that was an overcorrection. But, you know, some people really object to the idea that homebuyers would have a harder time bringing a lawsuit for shoddy construction. So, well, it's not really a harder time bringing it. It's just you've got two sides, right? One argument is that the person who's building the building – has done everything, they, and they do everything perfectly, and then all of a sudden there are these what they call nuisance lawsuits. And they happen. I've seen them happen. You know, I used to take old warehouses and turn them into housing. Nu- nuisance meaning frivolous? Yes, frivolous. And yet there have been cases of some really questionable construction. Exactly, and that's the other side. Someone who's bought a home in a new building, they are absolutely deserve the right to be able to live in something and to own something that was as promised. So my point is that there's a, there should be a compromise there that allows a, a builder to build in confidence that if he builds something competently, uh, and if, 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 let's say he finds something that was an accidental, inadvertent problem and that something in the flooring is not right, they should have the right to come back in and repair it and fix it, not have to go through a lawsuit. All this stuff is being negotiated how many days, how many weeks, how many months, who talks to who when. It becomes a very complicated issue because in larger projects, the amount of money involved in something like this is significant. It's, it's more difficult than I thought it would be. And I, you know, I'm just being candid. Before we go, I'm interested to get your take on Democratic politics nationally right now. So last week, the Democrats chose to try to block the Supreme Court nomination of Colorado Neil Gorsuch. He was confirmed anyway. They largely stayed out of the health reform efforts. There's certainly a lot of anger on the left right now. But what do you see as the Democratic strategy these days. What is the party focusing on? Well, I think that the, the issue around Gorsuch, you know, Michael Bennett made a couple points. The senator from Colorado? Yes, in terms of the prolonged filibuster. And he was against the filibuster because he said the votes are, if they go to the nuclear option, the votes are going to pass. Uh, Judge Gorsuch will become Justice Gorsuch regardless. Better to now recognize that this is someone who even the American Bar Association, pretty liberal organization, says is qualified to be a Supreme Court justice and really make the case that the next nomination should still have that 60-vote threshold that you should get to. And I think he made a really good point. I'm not sure what the Democrats gained by the filibuster. Now we've got a precedent that 50 votes is what it takes to, to become a Supreme Court justice. I, I think critics would say, listen, it, the filibuster is going to die on it, well, this issue or another. I don't know whether Susan Collins or, or Lisa Murkowski 
uh, even people like Lindsey Graham, who really believes in the in the tradition of the Senate, whether if there had been an olive branch, if if some Democrats had come and said, "We're going to vote, we're going to support this, but we want your commitment," you, you know, the, 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 coming down the road, we got to all we got to get sixty votes. I think there are enough Republicans that would have gone along with that, that it would have been worth the risk. So let's take this a bit more globally. What does this tell us about the Democratic strategy? And what are your thoughts about you know, where Democrats are right now? I think Democrats, both in Washington, but around the country, are very frustrated. And they're frustrated that, so many, that there's no consistency coming out of the White House. Do you feel that? Uh, in certain cases, yes. I think that the we would welcome a clear plan of partnership of how we could work together and you know, move forward in terms of issues like infrastructure and health care and education. But is frustration a political strategy? No, I don't think it is. And I think that it gets in the way of a political strategy. And I think somehow the Democratic Party has to digest you know, all of what has happened and you know, return to a coherent strategy of, of how we're going to address this in the short term and then what the long-term plan is for, you know, bringing the party back into a position where they're actually going to be making the decisions. It sounds like you think the Democrats are still finding their footing. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd use those words, but I, I, I do think the anger and frustration is a, is a very real issue that makes it harder to get everyone together and to figure out, all right, because anytime you've got, you know, the Democratic Party is a big tent. And if you're going to really try and create strategy with that, all those different voices, it, it takes compromise. And it's hard to compromise and work together when you're just really angry, it, it just bitter about the way things are. Big tent. I think that was a Reagan phrase. Was it really? I think so. Well, we'll, we're, we'll, we're, we'll we're going to make this tent great again. Thank you for being with us. It's always a pleasure. Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado. We speak regularly at the state capitol. The last plane left Denver's Stapleton Airport 22 years ago. Since then, the control tower has sat there empty as a new neighborhood sprouted up around it. For years, people asked, what's going to happen to that tower? Then news came it would become an upscale bowling alley and restaurant. Renovations are underway for a late summer opening. We dropped by to meet a man who has a lot of memories of this place, Mike Coulter. He worked as an air traffic controller at Stapleton for eight years. Have you been back to this site since Stapleton closed? Not in... since 1995. Really? This is your first time first, back? First time back. And I wonder what is going through your mind or your heart right now. I'm wondering where everything is. I know it looks a lot <laughs> looks a lot different around here. There aren't you can't runways. put airplanes in any of these buildings here. <laughs> We're surrounded by homes uh, because a neighborhood has grown up around what yeah. used to be taxiways and terminals. Yep. What do you feel when you look up at that tower? It looks just like it did then. You know, old, small, but was home. Now you say it's small. I guess we're going to have that experience ourselves, but what do you mean? Well, compared to DIA or any of the newer towers, it, there's not a lot of space up there, about 800 square feet, so not a lot of room to move around. Well, why don't we go up to the top of the tower, and I'd like to ask for a few of your memories <laughs> from okay. up there. And a lot of them. So, Mike, the elevator isn't operating. We're going to take the stairs all the way up? 
Yep. Take the stairs. Okay. I've had before. That, that, that's something you're used to. I'm used to it. How yeah. many stories do you know? Uh, I can't remember what this one is. I think we're on 14 or 15 compared to DIA, which is 33. Okay, let's go up. With hard hats on, Mike and I begin the long climb to the top. The tower's been gutted down to the studs and concrete. It's all part of the plan to turn this landmark into a punch bowl social. We continue up the stairs. It does go on, doesn't it? Four stories, then eight, ten, twelve. We pass what would have been the control tower offices and break room. Water falls on us as snow melts on the roof from a recent storm. There's a draft, too. And it was always this cold in here, too. It never warmed up. Finally, we reach the top, and Mike Coulter takes it all in. Oh, man. What a view! Nicer view than DIA, let me tell you. Why? Closer to everything. Yeah, so much closer to the mountains than DIA. A lot. It is pretty small. How many people would work in this space? Uh, you generally have six. Six, plus all the equipment. Everything was close. With so many people in such a tight space, did it get smelly? Ah, you know, on occasion. Uh, you know, if the air conditioning went out... Or a couple times in the winter when the furnace went out, you know, and they heated up, we'd get fog on the windows. (laughs) I remember one time we had somebody wipe the windows down because of the fog that was on when they were trying to get it going again. It was low-tech sometimes. Uh, All the time was low-tech. Compared to today, yeah, this was very low-tech. Yeah, it looks a lot different. And there are photos of the old tower inside and out at cprnews.org. I want you to tell us about when the Pope and President Clinton <laughs> came to Denver. Their big 747s were parked. And there were two of them down there, and they were nose-to-nose. Uh, it was back in 1993, just before this closed. Uh, in fact, had DIA opened on time, all that would have taken place out at DIA. Ah. What else do you remember from that day? Well, when they were leaving, I mean, there's a set protocol for almost anything that happens with dignitaries come and go. Well, they were both parked over there, you know, and we didn't have to close the airspace down like you do today. Oh. So this airport just kept operating. Uh, and you had the Pope and the President over there. Air, Air Force, Force One. Air sitting, Force One. Yeah. And, uh, Papal One. It was an Aero <laughs> Italia 747. They were waiting for each other to leave. And through communications and however they deal with each other. I mean, obviously, we had the Secret Service up here. In the tower? Oh, they would, yeah, they would, a week in advance, their phones would come in, and they'd set up, and then there'd be a Secret Service agent just hanging around, oh, wow. drinking coffee, watching what was going on. But it sounds like the president was thinking the Pope would go first, and right. the Pope was they, thinking the president would go Neither of them knew which first. one was supposed to leave first, <laughs> so they were literally both pointed out there, and we're like, okay, we close the airport now to let them taxi out, we shut the east-west complex down, okay, somebody move. Who went first? Uh, eventually, the Pope did. The Pope but you see somebody first. come out. Somebody in a military uniform, eventually you saw the door open, Air Force One came out and went over to Paper One uh, and had a conversation. And between that and their radios and telephones, uh, they resolved. And the president stayed there and waited until the Pope left. Uh, And he literally sat there until the Pope was airborne. And then he taxied out. Taxiway diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. For those who haven't been in Denver long enough, one of the cool things about the old Stapleton Airport is that 
uh, one of the runways, taxiways, went over I-70. Over so the interstate. It's quite possible to have a 747 on top of you. Yes. Yeah. Not quite possible. Quite likely. Quite likely. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite airport between Denver and Stapleton, DIA and Stapleton? Oh, I would take Stapleton a heartbeat. Why? Why? You know, maybe because I, I spent so much time here, but it was, it was smaller, it was more compact, uh, certainly a little more crazy, uh, work by the seat of your pants type operation. I mean, things happened here a little quicker. I mean, things out at DI are still technical and busy, but here, this airport wasn't built for the amount of airplanes that landed and took off every day. Mm, you had 1,800, 2,000 airplanes land and taken off in this small space. Uh, you it's, had to adapt. It, you had to adapt, and with yeah. the changing wind and weather, we'd take off opposite direction, crossing back and forth. It was just, you had to be on your toes. And when I was on the ground, they all look alike. So, How much different was the weather here at Stapleton than at DIA, where you later worked, given how much closer it is to the mountains? was uh, Out there, you could see it coming to some extent. You're a little farther away from the mountains. You could see it build. Here, being close to the mountains, they would literally build... Every afternoon in the summer. The clouds would build. The clouds would build. The thunderstorms would build. You know, and we just keep going until they get built to a point. But this close, once they roll off the foothills, they're here. We had to turn the airport around uh, to get them into the wind. Clear to land, jet like 21, 28. Uh, wind show alert now. 2-5 knot loss on the runway. Wind 280 at 1-9-er. Runway 2-6. Uh, United uh, 579 going around. And with this airport, along with Orlando, uh, these two airports had the most thunderstorms and wind shears of any airport in the country. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we've been speaking with Mike Coulter, a retired air traffic controller. We are looking at a pretty fantastic view of Denver from the top of the old Stapleton control tower, which sat for years empty, people wondering what it would become. And what it will become is a punch bowl social, a kind of fancy bowling alley, restaurant, bar. We're going to talk a little bit with the CEO of the company, Robert Thompson, about the challenges, the opportunities of converting a control tower into an eatery. Robert, the burning question is, will this tower the very tip top of it, be open to people? I don't think it'll be open on day one. It's not ADA compliant. and Not um, accessible, that is. That's right. It's not accessible. And um, so the, the city and, uh, uh, and the ADA would like us to uh, facilitate that before we bring customers up here. Because the elevator only goes so far, then you have to take the steps. That's right. So and that's the way it was when it was the uh, uh, air tower, and that's the way it still is today. We'd have to bring the elevator up multiple floors. But the the elevator wasn't functioning for us, which is why my calves are still burning. So I understand the city approached you as a possible redeveloper of this site. What went through your mind when they made that proposal? Not much. Um, I I would not recommend this to any business student, but I said yes within about 15 seconds. Why? Because this was a Colorado icon. And uh, we here in Denver and in Colorado have been struggling to figure out what to do with this tower. So when Councilman Herndon from uh, the city of Denver's uh, council uh, asked me to consider this, I said yes, and then we'd figure out the rest later. And what has that entailed, figuring it out? What have the challenges been? Um, the, uh, the costs associated with uh, repurposing 
an air traffic control tower and um, bringing in the infrastructure to do a restaurant and an entertainment concept. Entertainment? Uh, did you, is, did you just use the word entertainment with eater, me? Entertainment. Okay. Is what we are. Okay. That's, that's our category. Yes, bowling and eating. And uh, that's right, and Southern inspired diner and craft beverages. So, will the cost of making these changes be reflected, I don't know, in the rent? It'll be reflected in a combination of the rent and then the capital that we uh, as, at Punchable Social bring to the project as oh. well. Tell us a little bit about the redesign. The base building is 15,000 square feet today. We're adding 5,000 additional square feet to the space. Um, we're going to move our corporate headquarters up to the top floor. There'll be 15,000 remaining for entertainment. And then we're developing additionally 14,000 square feet of outdoor entertainment space. That will all be Punchbowl Social, which is based in Denver. That's correct. Are you going to pay homage in some ways to the aviation history? So there will be uh, a lot of reflections of mid-century modern um, flight. So That kind of catch-me-if-you-can feel? Yeah, that's right. Very kitschy, very Pan Am air, uh, maybe some um, you know, oblique references to the great world of traveling to somewhere that was warm and tiki-oriented. There are so many fabulous faraway places to see. Such as Mexico, Sweden, Hawaii, Japan, and Capri. There's so many exciting and wonderful places. Mountains and jungles and desert oases. Pleasant as home is, it isn't what Rome is. So why stay there when there are so many fabulous... Punchbowl Social CEO Robert Thompson speaking with me at the top of the old Stapleton Control Tower in Denver. It's under renovation and will open as a bowling alley eatery in late summer. Earlier, I chatted with Mike Coulter, retired air traffic controller. There's a video and photos from our visit at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Like Bangkok and Hong Kong and Paris and Venice, Tokyo and Cairo and Lisbon and London, wonderful, fabulous places we're longing to see. Longmont banjo player Jamie Stone says field recordings made decades ago by the renowned folklorist Alan Lomax are like heirloom seeds. Starting in the 1930s, Lomax traveled the world collecting thousands of songs. Jamie Stone and his collaborators have cultivated new music from those old tracks. Their latest album is called Jamie Stone's Folk Life. And to Jamie, good to have you back on the program. Of course. This is your second album inspired by the Alan Lomax collection. It covers a broad swath of musical styles. Let's just jump in with Buttermilk. Now, you got to speak to a couple of people who were around when Alan Lomax made the original recording of this song in 1959. Uh... First, tell us about the woman who remembers Lomax's visit to her childhood home. Yeah, Esther May Wilburn was nine years old in 1959 when Alan showed up to record uh, her grandfather um, and uncle, um, Miles and Bob Pratcher, uh, in this little tiny rural 
part of Como, Mississippi in the Mississippi Hill Country. Um, there was, I think she told me that 15 of them uh, lived in a, a, like, basically like a one-room house with no running water, no refrigeration. Oh. Um, and uh, the kids were all out playing and, and this, you know, white folklorist showed up um, with his, you know, partner in towing this 300-pound recording device and, um, you know, uh, and she like curiously peered on the front porch as they made these recordings. And uh, um, now, you know, she's in her 50s and um, still lives right around the corner um, from where the recordings were made and uh, is a beautiful musician herself. How did you learn about her? Well, I actually uh, had called Shirley Collins, who um, just turned 80. She is the English folk singer. Exactly. and uh, she had a, a, a brief um, but magical love affair with Alan Lomax um, the year he did his famed Southern Journey um, recording where he went back with his first ever stereo recording device and uh, visited all the southern states that he had, hadn't been in 20 years uh, to see if the traditions were still alive and kicking. And, you know, she uh, carried the recording devices down and uh, she typed up all the field notes at the end of the day and um, – and, uh, of course, they had this sort of love affair and wild travel adventures. And uh, anyway, I, I got to meet her um, and uh, we spent uh, uh, an afternoon together and she regaled me with all these stories. And she mentioned that there were these little little granddaughters that were at that session. And uh, I sort of did the math in my head and I'm like, well, they're surely still alive. And, yeah. um, and, and I just tracked down their phone number and uh, um, they were surprised by my call. But it was kind of amazing to talk to people on both sides of this session. So the opening track we heard, Buttermilk, uh, is sung by Dom Flemons of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, the Grammy award-winning African-American string band. And uh, he had a pretty special connection to that song, didn't he? Yeah, it turned out... Um, when we first started talking about what songs to do, I, I suggested Buttermilk because I'd always loved it. And he said, oh, my God, that's, you know, this f- totally full circle um, song because uh, it was the very first black string band song he had ever heard. And it turned him on to this tradition that he's now spent his whole life working in. Take me back, take me back, baby, that's all right. So as you investigated the stories behind the music, what did you learn about life in that one-room home with 15 or so people? Yeah, you know, they lived a pretty hard scrabble life. Um, You know, they they picked cotton for much of their days. They were sharecroppers. Um, They grew almost all their own food. And so it was really mixed. Like on the one hand, you know, it was deep poverty. Um, And on the other hand, there was this togetherness. You know, they had three generations all together and, you know, they would go dancing on the weekends and, you know, the grandparents would play square dances and the kids would run around and, you know, she remembers the name of the fellow who would make molasses down the street and who they traded apples with and, you know, uh, the names of their hogs. And it was, you know, a, a, a 
kind of beautiful and really difficult life. And, and you know, right, and really difficult. I mean, they were sharecroppers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was music, and uh, that's what we're talking about today with Jamie Stone. His new album is called Jamie Stone's Folk Life, and let's talk about Hey Lally Lally Low. Uh, this is a recording of Alan Lomax, the folklorist, himself singing it. Heist your window, raise them higher. Hey, lily, lily, low. Sun gone down and the moon on fire. Hey, lily, lily, low. Papa's out and mama's sleeping. Hey, lily, lily, low. Dark out here, nobody peeping. Hey, lily, lily, low. Hey, lily, lily, low. I always think of him lugging around that equipment. I don't think of his as, as a singer as much, but pretty decent voice. I, I want to do a bit of a before and after. So that's Alan Lomax singing. Here is what you and your collaborator Moira Smiley did with the song. So hoist your window, raise it higher. Hey, lolly, lolly, low. The sun's gone down and the moon's on fire. Hey, lolly, lolly, low. Your mama's out and your papa's sleeping. Hey, lolly, lolly, low. It's dark out here, nobody's peeping. Hey, lolly, lolly. Mm. That is such a different version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why don't we talk first about the history of the song a little bit and uh, where the Lomax version came from and then how you changed it? Yeah, well, um, Alan Lomax um, sort of got uh, scared out of the country in 1950 because uh, uh, he'd been blacklisted along with Pete Seeger and Aaron Copeland and all these sort of left-wing artists. Um, They were worried were revolutionaries. Um, And uh, he thought maybe it was a good time to uh, disappear to Europe. And so he he sailed out with his recording gear and uh, he ended up spending a decade recording in Scotland and Spain and elsewhere. And he sort of set up camp in London. He had a flat there. Um, and uh, he and Shirley Collins used to um, make recordings of themselves. I sort of joke that it's like a, a equivalent of like the modern day selfie. Um, okay. and, <laughs> An audio uh, selfie. Yeah. And it was kind of cool because you'd hear his favorite songs. That one uh, at the very end of the recording, uh, his, his daughter, Anna, who was visiting, you can hear her in the background going, that was a really good take, daddy. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so we... So this is a song he found there? Uh, no, this is a song he had, he'd always loved and, okay. you know, Woody Guthrie did it and it's got roots in the American West and the Bahamas and the huh. South. Um, and it's, uh, a, a kind of usually done as, as he did it, like a, like a hootenanny, you know, it's a, um, a real kind of uppity song. Um, and, uh, um, Maura brought it in and, um, we had called a little band retreat at my house to, uh, work on some new material and, um, she left the room and I, I just read the lyrics, um, and I didn't really have the song in my head that much anyway. And so it, it actually is about this clandestine love affair. And it's like quite a sexy song. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I, I just started like immediately writing these sort of like smoldering, almost jazz ballad like harmony to it. And she came back in the room 10 minutes later and was like, whoa. And she just sang it and immediately got the vibe. And it's been been like that ever since. Hey, 
We have a video of the song posted at cprnews.org. How about from sultry to sacred now, with your foray into a style called sacred harp singing? I get goosebumps when I hear this. Um, so this is Hallelujah from your album. Give joy or grief, give ease or pain, take life or friends away, but let me find them all again in that eternal day. And I'll sing hallelujah, and you'll sing hallelujah, and we'll all Will you explain what sacred harp singing is? Yeah, so it's a very archaic tradition that uh, started in New England, um, and uh, it's uh, old hymns, but they sort of threw out uh, the rule book of uh, proper harmony and counterpoint that had really developed in Europe, sort of as a, a response to you know wanting a, a kind of more folksy. Um, uh, American sound. Uh, oh. And uh, they actually, uh, people felt that it was in such poor taste that it got stamped out and ended up kind of taking off down south. Um, and so you, there's lots of sacred harp singing in Alabama and Georgia and um, down there. But there, there's still, you know, some steadfast people that really kind of like its quirkiness. Um, you know, the first time actually I ever went to a sacred harp sing um, was in Boulder. Ah. Um, and, and the tradition is actually alive and well out here. Um, and uh, they, they told me, uh, just remember that if you can hear your neighbor, uh, that then you're not singing loud enough. Um, and, uh, so, uh, the style is really marked by this like bright twangy kind of let it all hang out singing style. And it's also, uh, democratic. So there's no leader. Um, so oh, wow. there's a bunch of books. There's the sacred harp book that we, um, got that song from. And then, um, you know, the Southern harmony and musical companion, all these different ones. And, um, yeah, here's a, a little more of it. Oh, what a glorious sight appears to our believing eyes. The earth and seas are passed away and the old rolling skies. And I'll sing hallelujah, and you'll sing hallelujah, and we'll all sing hallelujah. And the singer, Moira Smiley, had this tradition in her own background. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, uh, just about two weeks ago, we were on tour and we played in, in her hometown in uh, rural Bristol, Vermont. Um, and the whole community came out and they all actually sang along with this and pretty much every song. Um, very enthusiastic singers. Um, yeah, her family was part of this uh, village harmony group that got together and sang shape notes, sort of 70s uh, Back to the Landers um, that really uh, embraced this tradition, um, and it's uh, it's really a beautiful thing. Longmont banjo player Jamie Stone makes old music new again. He digs into the music annals, much of it from the famed folklorist Alan Lomax, and puts uh, a new spin on those folk songs uh, with 
musical collaborators. His new album is called Jamie Stone's Folk Life. And I want to say that not every song on this album was inspired by a Lomax recording. Tell us about the origins of Wait on the Rising Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1939, a folklorist who was a colleague of Alan Lomax, he worked at the Library of Congress, um, got this gig as part of the Federal Writers Project um, and uh, um, set out in actually a, a converted army ambulance that he called his sound wagon. Um, <laughs> and uh, he went through seven southern states over 14 weeks. Uh, in fact, he was so prolific that he kept having to telegraph back to the library and uh, request more of these acetate discs that they would, you know, etch the songs into. Um, And uh, um, he wound up actually in um, uh, Bahalia, Mississippi and got introduced to this family. um, And uh, the the two younger daughters, um, Christine and Catherine, were incredible singers. Um, and uh, um, their papa was a, a pastor and their mama had taught them, as they used to say, to, to tune the songs. That means to figure out the harmonies. Um, and they would take songs from the schoolyard, songs their teachers taught them, songs that they learned in church. And sometimes they would just pull stuff off the radio, but they like to uh, tune them themselves. They like to actually um, work out their own new versions of them. And so um, we got this song that had been on the radio uh, around that time um, from from their particular version. From their particular version. This is the Halpert family. Is that right? Uh, this is actually the Ship family. The Ship. I'm sorry. The yeah. Ship family recorded by Mr. Halpert. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the, their version. I'm living down here. Down here on Bar. Boy, on, I'm living down here. Down here on Bar. Boy, on, I'm living down here. Down here on Bar. Boy, I'm going Okay, the ship family. And we have a photo actually of Halbert and his sound wagon. <laughs> Uh, which he used to record this at cprnews.org. I want to hear your version of this track, Wait for the Rising Sun, in a a moment, but why don't you set it up for us and and what you wanted to achieve with it? Yeah, this was one of those ones that was so perfect. There wasn't that much to do. Right. Um, But it was short because um, they had heard the song on the radio, probably didn't have a recording of it, and uh, and didn't catch all the verses. And so I really wanted to sing more verses. Um, and so I, I went hunting for what I figured might be the, the version that they had heard um, because it was recorded in South Carolina one state over uh, about six months before this recording was made. So it seemed quite likely. Um, and uh, we borrowed back a few of the versions, but then there was this amazing bass singing um, that we had had to kind of steal ideas from. And so this kind of, you know, circled back a little bit to the version that we think they heard. It's musical forensics. Yeah. Really digging into the history. All right, here's your version. I'm living down here. Down here on Barren Land, Lord, I'm living down here. Down here on Barren Land, Lord, I'm living down here. Down here on Barren Land, I'm going to wait, my Lord. I'm gonna wait on that rising, oh Lord, that rising. Wait on the rising sun, wait on the rising sun, wait on the rising sun. I'm just wait on the rising sun. Oh, I'm living down here, down here on barren land, but I'm living down here. Oh, Jamie Stone, this album makes me wish I could sing. Thank you for being with us. That's Longmont banjo player Jamie Stone. His new album is called Folk Life. 
and he'll perform at the Wildflower Pavilion in Lyons on Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.